I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi, everyone. This is Rachel Kanya, and today we have Kyle Samani, co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital, a thesis-driven crypto fund that invests in tokens and companies reshaping the economy. In this episode, Kyle and Chad sit down to talk about the future trends Kyle's noticing in crypto markets, why he chose to place roots in Austin instead of Silicon Valley, and Kyle's experience with crypto regulation at both a national and international level. Kyle's commentary is for informational purposes only and not investment advice. Stay tuned for more from Kyle Samani of Multicoin Capital. Kyle, welcome to the show. Chad, great to be on. How are you doing today? You mentioned you were uh, you were pretty busy this morning. Uh, I've, had, I've had a really good day. Just been working through some internal documents, website stuff, just a whole bunch of, kind of internal things. But I've been on the road the last three weeks, and this week I am not on the road. So it's actually very so nice. Traveling tends to take it out of uh, anybody. When you're traveling for work or for multi-coin capital, what's your day look like? What's your uh, What's your week usually like? Is it primarily investor meetings, LP meetings? Uh, what's that like? It varies pretty widely, honestly, depending on on travel versus not. Uh, it also depends on on the market cycle. In Q4 2018, uh, I spent a lot of my time fundraising because a lot of people were reaching out. In Q1 2019, no one's really reaching out. So uh, <laughs> it just depends on market cycle, where we are, if we're working on a big deal, internal stuff. Yeah, I probably have a few broad buckets of, of work fundraising, internal stuff, and kind of call it investment activity. Uh, those are three major buckets uh, of work. And when somebody asks you about your work at Multicoin Capital and co-founding the company, let's let's assume that they have maybe some basic background in cryptography or uh, Bitcoin. How do you describe it to someone that has maybe like a, a starting knowledge, but maybe they think that the crypto community is uh, still in the early days or they think it's a nascent space. How do you describe what what you do? Yeah, so Multicoin Capital is a thesis-driven, long-short crypto hedge fund. And as a founder of the firm, I co-manage the fund with my co-founder, Tushar. We spend our time looking at qualitative and quantitative indicators and kind of allocating our portfolio accordingly. In terms of like technical stuff, you know, unless you're a pretty technical person, we usually don't get into that. But oftentimes talk about kind of how you think about portfolio construction, longs versus shorts, derivatives, um, those kinds of things in the in the portfolio. And then how I actually spend my time, I spend a lot of my time working with our team. We have a pretty fantastic team now of engineers and data scientists on staff, of people with strong finance backgrounds and trading backgrounds, our head of communications, our analysts. So we now have a pretty diverse team, uh, obviously my co-founder Tushar, to you know ultimately make our, our portfolio decisions for the fund. And how did you and Tushar go about starting the fund? And what were the uh, or the origins like? If you can take me back to maybe the first conversation that led to the led to your company. Yeah. So for some historical context, so I started my first company out of college in May of 2013. Uh, it was called Pristine. Pristine built software for Google Glass for surgeons. I know Glass was never a very popular consumer product but it was actually a really interesting uh, tool for surgeons because surgeons work with their hands. So it was one of the few applications for glass that actually made a lot of sense. 
And our doctor still uses it, by the way. So the doctors here in uh, Palo Alto, there are still plenty of them who uh, don't want to let it go. So it's popular here. Yeah, absolutely. So this, that was probably non-surgical use cases. We Our yeah. use cases are more focused in the operating room. But we built uh, applications for things like looking up x-rays and capturing documentation and video streaming and those kinds of things. The business was actually pretty well. We ended up raising a uh, seed round of financing in that Series A, raised about $5 million in venture capital total, grew to a few million in revenue, grew to about 30 employees. Uh, and then Google killed Google Glass, at which point, um, or they effectively ended the program uh, for yeah. consumers. They kept the enterprise program alive, but it was very much handicapped. And when Google made that decision, that put a serious, a serious handicap on our business, really prevented us from growing because all of our customers thought Glass was dead and they just they weren't willing to invest in building processes and infrastructure on top of Glass because they didn't think Glass was going to be around in the future. And so that decision was made in January 2015. Google made that, that announcement. Uh, over the course of 2015, I pivoted the company. The company was ultimately acquired. It was an engineering pickup. And I, and I kind of knew I was on my way out the door. So I found myself unemployed in January of 2016. Uh, and I discovered this thing called Ethereum in March of 2016. And Ethereum is what really pulled me into crypto. Uh, in particular, I was drawn to this idea of this open development platform that no one could take away from me. I had very much felt the pain of platform risk. Uh, and so I knew that I wanted to build you know, on a platform that, that got for me guarantees about its, uh, where it will be in the future. So discovered Ethereum in March of 16. Thought it was pretty interesting. Started to think about smart contracts, and then that was pretty interesting. I studied finance at, at, in college, although I never worked in finance. And so the application, you know, the idea of using smart contracts as, as trust-minimized escrows what was particularly appealing to me. And so over the course of 2016, I started to look more and more into crypto. You know, first Ethereum, then into Bitcoin, then into Monero and Zcash and Augur and the other painful things that were out at the time. And just every week I would spend uh, more and more time reading about it, learning about it and investing my own capital. Uh, by spring of 2017, I realized, okay, this is, this is real. Like I, this isn't just play stuff on the side. Like I can go do this professionally and manage money and do this. So in May of 2017, Tushar and I made the decision to launch Multicoin. Tushar is my best friend. We met at, at NYU 10 or 11 years ago. Oh, we both studied finance. We both really bonded over the fact that we were passionate about high growth technology companies and how to think about valuing them. And so after college, Tushar moved to Austin, which is where I'm from originally. We both worked in, in tech startups. While I did Pristine, Tushar did another tech startup called ePatient Finder. And uh, we kind of started going down crypto, the crypto rabbit hole together over the course of 2016. I discovered this thing called Ethereum, which had just been out for a few months. And I sent it to him and we you know, talk about it and applications for contracts and kind of iterated through the process um, over the course of the year. By 17, we said, hey, this is, this is for real. Let's go do this. So that's how we decision to launch fund. I would love to talk more about your decision to launch the fund. And I think what's interesting is you were starting out investing your own money. And this is how I think a lot of thesis-driven funds start is where the, the founder or the co-founders are experimenting, usually with large portions of their own capital or at least substantial portions. How do you think about those early days of experimenting to form a thesis? Are, are there any inspirations that you're following or examples in the fund space that really inspire you? Or are you completely putting this together uh, on your own in the wilderness? I mean, like, yeah, so definitely I had a uh, unhealthy percentage of my net worth in crypto and <laughs> still, still do. Like, um, and I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in the long run. And so although the volatility is painful in the short run, like I'm in sure. the long run, and I think most of my peers in crypto generally fall in the same, I think it's a pretty apt description. The, the, the way it becomes possible is because you actually have to believe in the long run. And if you believe in the long run, right, like there's two ways to think about risk. So the traditional finance way to think about risk is to think about risk as volatility. And like uh, in one sense, that's true. And if you truly manage your, your net worth on a second by second basis, then I guess that's a reasonable way to think about risk. I find that that view of risk to be far too uh, limiting and, and just, I think, grossly incorrect in a lot of ways. And I think about risk really more as what's the percent chance of, of my dollars going to be worth zero. And if you think about risk in that way, at this point, I think the probability that crypto goes to zero is damn near zero. And I, and I think there's a very high probability that crypto, you know, at least five years from now will be worth 10x what it is now, if not, if not 100x. Um, and so you look at the asymmetry of that, of that skew, and, and yeah, I'm super biased, but if my probability assessments are even approximately correct, like the EV of that bet is, you know, amazing. And it's really a once in a lifetime bet. There's just haven't been any opportunities in, in recent history where anyone at large can invest in a liquid public thing. It's global and have a chance to generate those kinds of returns. And to be able to do that, not only with my own balance sheet, but then also be able to seek alpha and use other people's capital to get leverage on my own, on my own access and my own intelligence and have a team uh, just makes it all the better. So like, I love it. I love what I do. It's super cool. And we have, you know, hopefully a number of structural advantages and we, you know, we're, we're all in and we've become comfortable with the risk and we've probably made it through the worst of the most recent downturn. Uh, I don't think we're going to hit new lows. And so um, at this point, like all the more reason to be bullish. Sure. And when you think about the long-term future for your fund, are there any examples or inspirations in the space? Maybe they're outside of crypto where you look up to these fund managers or where you've studied what they do and you're trying to apply similar lessons or, or are you not modeling yourself after anyone in the space? I mean, certainly I know my peers pretty well among the other sure. kind of major crypto funds. Although we've gotten some learning from them, I mean, I think the, the real place to get learnings as an asset manager is from other fund managers who've done this sure. on a much larger scale over much longer time horizons. So I spent a lot more of my time, a lot of our LPs are GPs at large hedge funds and GPs at large venture funds. And so we spent quite a bit of our, our energy learning from them um, and then reading about history of financial markets. So like right now I'm reading about the history of JP Morgan. It's a book called House of Morgan. It's very long, but excellent kind of history of, of JP Morgan. And looking at, you know, Howard Marks has written some fantastic books, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett. I mean, like obvious people, right? But learning from- But not many people have read the source material though, which always shocks me that the more these folks are brought up in popular conversation, it seems like it's harder to find people who have actually read the source material. Do you find that to be the same or in the circles you run in, is it just like everybody's reading the same stuff or no? I mean, there's definitely some group think. I mean, like things like, right, like Sapiens is like probably like- Sure. For an example in the last few years and like it was an amazing book and I enjoyed it. Um, I read Bad Blood because I wanted some, I wanted like a story about some crazy fraud. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> um, but like among finance people, I, I think there, there's a- there's enough variety now that it's it's not all overlap. Gotcha. And what I think I the way I read it, my framing is different than a lot of others, given the concentration risk we take, as well as the the risk of the asset class. So, and also the fact that we have a lot of venture-like elements in our business that are are pretty atypical to most hedge funds. 
So, yeah, I, I would be really interested to hear how you characterize your fund versus uh, a hedge fund. So is the average decision that a GP of a large hedge fund or an LP that you're talking to, are they considering going with you know a more traditional hedge fund? What's the alternative here? Are they even thinking about investing in crypto or are a lot of the prospective folks that you're talking to, uh, are, have they already been doing diligence for a while? What's that, what's that process like and wh- where are folks at? Yeah, I mean, there's folks at every layer of kind of all the way from crypto as a scam to, you know, how do I put 100 percent of my net worth in crypto? So I generally don't talk to people until they're at the point where they have made the decision. I want to invest in crypto. I want to not invest passively. I want some mm-hmm. sort of active strategy. And that's the point when I typically start talking to people. So they're already pretty bought in. Uh, and then the, they have real questions about the different kinds of actively managed strategies. We are pretty unique in that we're both long, short, and that we have both public liquid investments and private liquid investments that look more like venture. And that's all in one uh, bucket. Um, our reasoning that, that is, I'd say on a traditional asset management basis, rather atypical. We do it for a few reasons. The first is we believe if you're going to have long-term fundamental exposure to crypto, you'd want both public and private exposure because there's a lot of interesting things happening in the private markets that just simply aren't public. And so if you are long-term convicted in the, the mega theses for crypto, you're going to want exposure liquid and illiquid. Is there any example that you can cite like that's your favorite go-to example of uh, private exposure and basically like why you want that? Because I think a lot of investors are just so, they're coming to this with like a lot of fear. There are a lot of like incorrect stories that they've read in the press that are not exactly accurate. So how do you talk to them about that? Yeah. So like, I mean, a very simple example is any business that's kind of built around providing market infrastructure for crypto. So exchanges like Coinbase and Binance are very obvious examples. Uh, we just made a, a private investment in a company called Tagomi. Tagomi builds, is building an institutional prime brokerage for crypto. Um, basically anything that's picks and shovels kind of, right? That's like the general way to think about it. Any form of exchanges, derivatives, custodians, all of these kinds of things are very obvious pieces of market infrastructure that are necessary. Um, and those are all, you know, probably solid investments and in businesses that are, will give you exposure to the crypto space without any of the idiosyncratic risk of any one currency. As an example, um, if you want to get more technical, we just invested in a company called Textile. Textile is building uh, what is effectively Firebase, um, Google's Firebase like SDK, but for uh, Web3 and for IPFS, which is a kind of a connection. <laughs> system. So like that's a much more technical private company that's building in the space. So anyways, come back to the original question though, we uh, have a fundamental long-term view of crypto. I think we think crypto is going to be worth a lot more money than it is now. I think on the order of a hundred trillion or so once this all plays out over a few decades. And so we want exposure. That's why we do private and public. And then on the public side, you know, a lot of times people say, well, why do you short at all? Uh, if you have this long-term bullish bullishness and the reason is because like there's these are inefficient markets and we think we can generate better returns accordingly these markets are are structurally inefficient for a lot of reasons both in terms of how capital flows into them information asymmetries uh, understanding evaluation models re- regulatory trade-offs and risks like people structurally misvalue things in the space and so we want to take advantage of that do you draw any inspiration from the Seam Taleb or are there any other minds in the space of, you know, some of the greatest shorts of all time that you look to for uh, inspiration there? Are there any uh, funds that have done really well shorting uh, securities that you view as, uh, yeah, worthy of emulation maybe? 
not as much. I mean, like my favorite shorts are shorts where I have like a fundamental long thesis. And then like, I know because gotcha. that plays out, then I know this other thing is just structurally not going to survive. Right? So things like Blockbuster and Blackberry and Nokia are like recent examples in kind of tech history. And like, we look at crypto in the same way, like Western Union at some point will be worth very little. Timing, the entry to that trade is very difficult. Multicoin wouldn't short Western Union, it's kind of out of scope for us. But uh, in my personal account, for example, I'm not short Western Union because I don't think the timing is there yet. So timing that kind of a short is difficult. But there are even things in crypto that I think are short, very much shortable uh, on a fundamental basis and that in the long run will become worth you know, zero or some of them are very close to zero. And so is there anything that you're uh, comfortable sharing that you feel is like a very short-term phenomena in the crypto space that's not going to be around for long-term, but people, for whatever reason, they're kind of blind to this right now? Yeah, I'm happy to, happy to touch on some examples that we, we've written about publicly on our website. First one I'll highlight is uh, XRP or Ripple, commonly known. So, so Ripple, the company, um, had some interesting ideas around moving money between banks in 2012-ish or so when it was invented. Uh, they invented like a new crypto. They invented a new ledger and a new cryptocurrency. The founders kept 20% of all the coins, and the company kept 80% of all the coins. So it wasn't mined like Bitcoin is. And they had some interesting ideas for interbank transfer. Those actually never didn't play out as they originally anticipated. But like XRP is a cryptocurrency founded by cryptography, and it was listed on CoinMarketCap and kind of other like call it data websites for crypto as a quote unquote cryptocurrency. And so like when the speculative mania of 2017 happened, people just started buying things up haphazardly hoping they would pump. Uh, XRP happened to be on the list of things and uh, it, the company looks pretty legitimate. I mean, there's like the CEO and legit investors and, you know, oh, Ripple's gonna, the Trump Swift is like the kind of common thing you see. Uh, and it sounds really sexy and it like, you know, with a very simplistic understanding of banking and of cryptocurrencies that actually makes a lot of sense. And so this thing just pumped like crazy. I mean, Ripple was up, I think, 10,000 X in 2017. It was by far the best performing asset in crypto. And uh, like the currency that like, fundamentally doesn't, in our view, make sense. As it's intended to be used, it should not capture value. And somehow this thing is trading at 33 cents or 36 cents today. And there's 100 billion of them. And so that implies a market value of $36 billion. And like, I can argue that's worth zero. So uh, there's just these gross misvaluations of capital in the space uh, that eventually, you know, market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, but eventually truth will, truth will win. And how do you think about timing? Because obviously it's something that plagues a lot of different funds. I know you have the crypto mega thesis. How does that, does that thesis present any ideas about timing? And is there anything that you're doing right now to maybe get an informational advantage or time things better? Yeah. So, I mean, on, on a timing basis, that's very idiosyncratic to understanding, okay, where is the company at? What, you know, what adoption can we see? Conveniently in blockchains, all the, the ledgers are public. And so you can literally see usage of this thing in real time. And so we can see the thesis playing out in real time or, or not playing out in real time. So, you know, how we assess timing is a lot more kind of idiosyncratic variables, but the thesis in general is intact. Whether we should enter a position now or not is, is a lot more kind of minutia of uh, where things are. And then also understanding in crypto, just like the market cycles generally. Unfortunately, it's the case that when crypto generally turns into a bull market, the market irrationally pumps just because it does. People make gains in Bitcoin and Ether and they they go risk on and they want to make more money in alt, thin, more thinly traded altcoins. And so that's where the capital rotates. And so 
Like the market structurally is designed to go through these cycles and it, it just it just will do that. And so, you know, if you're going to consider a short in crypto, you need to consider that in the context of where you are um, in a market cycle. Understood. And so you have a second op-ed that you recently wrote for Business Insider, basically about how the crypto market is much more mature than the uh, average investor might think. Tell us a little bit about that op-ed and uh, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so one of the kind of common things we hear, especially from institutional LPs, is just that you know, the, the infrastructure in crypto is just not is just not there. And they're really referring to, to market infrastructure, things like custodianship and options and futures and these kinds of things. We launched the fund in Q, October 1st, 2017. The infrastructure was rather poor. We were at that time custodying all of our, all of our own assets, uh, which is extremely, extremely atypical for most professional money managers. Today, we out custody 100% of our assets with Coinbase. Coinbase has an institutional custodianship product. Um, it's SEC regulated. We custody there. There are uh, competitors now to Coinbase as well. Then it's a, it's a pretty competitive market. I think uh, like rates are 25 to 50 basis points per year. It's still much higher than traditional custody, but given the volatility of crypto, 50 basis points might be worth it. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter. So like that, that's now very firmly in place. We have futures now and you can short now in volume on Bitcoin and Ether today. That's very easy to do. The longer tail of assets is not quite there yet, but it's getting there. Things like uh, options, the options markets have been growing, I think month over month, 15, 20% month over month growth for the last six months. Wow. It's just starting to get to the point where you can now cause and puts long and short dated with meaningful dollars is now becoming possible. Prime brokerage did not exist three months ago. Togomi just went live a month, a month or two ago. Togomi's product is fantastic. So all of these different kind of pieces of market infrastructure that need to come together did not exist when we launched the fund today are, are for the most part usable and, and very quickly maturing. And uh, now today, people, things like cash controls and uh, administrative controls and audit records and all these things, all of the fund administrators and the auditors have all spent the last year or two figuring all this stuff out. And now all of that, all of that process also works pretty well. So, you know, today we're, we're not quite there to like level of, of long short public equities, but it's at this point, not very hard to project that in within one to two years, we'll be at the same level of kind of market infrastructure maturity as you would expect in long short public equity. I'd be really curious to to know what's your experience been like so far with regulators when you talk to somebody at the SEC or maybe someone who's outside in the space and who's looking in on the inside. What are some common questions that you're hearing and uh, what's exciting about that for you and what information do you wish regulators had that they don't seem to have right now? Yeah, so I, I think it's not that regulation, regulators don't have information, it's that they, they need to digest all of it and kind of come up with new frameworks and how to think about this stuff. I give credit to the SEC specifically for not being draconian and not just saying party's over, too many things here are weird and we don't know what to think about them. And so everything stop. And like they made the decision not to do that. So I'm very grateful that they've made that decision. On the other hand, the lack of clarity around what is and is not acceptable is still creates a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty like it just causes things to get delayed and opportunity cost of capital in early stage technology is extremely high and so that's frustrating when we talk to the sec we talk to them in kind of two different capacities either as a as a hedge fund that they need to uh, they have jurisdiction over or as you know we're providing input on are these asset securities and uh, like yes or no and and what are the implications of that and how does being based in Austin, do you feel that's an advantage? Do you even, does it even register for you? Or are you thinking about 
expanding? And if so, what are the first cities that you would want to expand to? Uh, yeah, so today we have, most of our team is in Austin. We have one employee in New York, Matt Shapiro. He's a principal with the firm. And we, we are actually going to be hiring, I think, here pretty soon and pretty, pretty aggressively. When we first started the firm, it was probably a disadvantage to be based in Austin because most of the action happens in San Francisco and New York. I think today it's actually a benefit to being in Austin because of the groupthink problem. Today, we're fortunate that we're running a, a, we're a well-known fund in the space. Information flow comes to us, deal flow comes to us, and we go to a lot of events anyways. And so we have a chance to see deals that we want to get access to, even if they're not in Austin. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're not at very much of a disadvantage by not being in San Francisco or New York. But the big benefit we get is not being exposed to the groupthink. Every time I go to San Francisco, you know, I, temp- I try and stop by a meetup or two just to kind of see what people are saying and doing. And uh, I find the unwillingness to challenge common assertions uh, to be very painful. And so I think being in Austin is actually a major, major benefit uh, on that sense because we don't get exposed to that every day. So I think that's very, very, very helpful. Beyond that, Austin is um, an awesome city. Like I, I live here because I think it's an amazing city to live in. And uh, for talent that we need to attract, moving to Austin is often like they're, they're excited for the chance to move to Austin. So uh, I think at this point, it's a lot more positives than negatives. I love it. And when you work with or whenever you talk to traditional technology VCs, do you see a lot of interest from top tier VCs to start investing more in the crypto space? Or do you see uh, a lot of traditional VCs and LPs being interested in investing in like a hedge fund like yours? Or do you think it's too early for most VCs to think about putting a portion of their fund to work in a crypto hedge fund? I think most VCs probably don't want to invest in another fund, but I think almost every VC out there has said, okay, what's crypto? How do you think about this? How do you make investments? Do we buy Bitcoin? Do we buy Ether? What do we do? And every, one of the, every firm has gone through this debate. They've called their LPs and asked their LPs about opinions on those questions. And they've all come you know, all the way from the spectrum of we'll invest in five crypto funds to we're not going to touch crypto. And not clear to me what causes them to go in one direction or another, other than probably general conviction in the space. Uh, we work with a lot of other investors, both crypto, non-crypto specific. The non-crypto VCs at this point, it's, it's pretty clear who is a non-crypto VC who will do a crypto deal and who will not. Um, and I think most VCs probably won't do crypto deals today. That's probably a good thing to be you know, probably a year ago, Q2 of 2018, the market was so, private markets were so hot with non-traditional, non-crypto VCs doing crypto deals. The valuations got very out of control. That problem has gone away. Uh, and that's, that's probably healthy for the market in the long run. At this point, I expect, you know, a lot of people at those VC firms have left and started their own crypto funds. So Matt Wang, for example, left Sequoia and launched Paradigm. Chris Dixon didn't really leave Andreessen Horowitz, but they like launched a, a, uh, crypto-specific vehicle. It was just leaked, I think, a week or two ago that Adam Goldberg left Lightspeed and is launching a new crypto venture fund. So, you know, we've seen these kind of few select people, right, spinning out of their firms. And that probably will continue at a, at a trickle pace. So when you think about team and culture building inside a fund, how are you thinking about building culture? Is that something that you think just happens organically by a fact of doing good work or having uh, a good investment thesis? Or how are you thinking about building culture? So culture is not something that happens. We are very explicit about culture and we have a lot of 
things we do both explicitly and implicitly to kind of reinforce those cultural values. At the end of the day, we don't build things, we, we make decisions. Like and we are paid to make decisions and we are paid to make decisions about what the future state of the world will be, right? And, and like there's some truth about what the future state of the world will be and there's some, uh, there some probability that every like, bunch of different states of the world will play out, right? And we need to assess those probabilities and weigh those kind of outcomes and allocate the portfolio accordingly. And, and so we kind of, our tagline internally is that we are a truth-seeking organization. Um, and that's our goal is to make sense of all this noise, understand the truth, and then bet on that truth, you know, happening. And so we have a, a, a very, very strong culture of open meritocratic and vocal disagreement. Everything you say will be questioned and everything I say will be questioned. And that the point is that every, we don't allow any kind of invalid assumptions to seek into your logic. If you're going to make some, like, make sure if you're going to talk about data that you're not getting cause and effect backwards. The best example of this is hash rate leading price. Hash rate follows price, but they correlate together. And so you like a very common example in crypto you see is the people confusing those. So if you're going to make a cause, a causation, a, you know, a causal argument on data, you need to be able to explain causation and not just say they're correlated. So these are the kinds of things that, hey, this technical stack is going to do X and Y and Z, or this new options exchange, you know, sees this hole in the market on whatever, on something BitMEX is not doing or something. Right. Well, like we need, we're going to challenge you. Well, what, what isn't BitMEX doing? Why, why are they not seeing this hole in the market? Why are they structurally incapable of not addressing this? Whatever. And so we're just constantly challenging each other's assumptions. And opinions. So ultimately we, we, you know, get to better views, you know, what the state of the world will be in the future and then allocate accordingly. That's by far the most powerful cultural value we have. And the thing we strive for uh, and Tushar and I are both very explicit about that in kind of company meetings and our onboarding with employees and encouraging disagreements um, in investment committee and otherwise. That, that's by far the most important thing. Beyond that, uh, it's a very collaborative culture. We, I, it's fine I say that uh, we like encourage disagreement, but outside of like the, the kind of disagreement zone, it's, it's extremely collaborative. Our analysts work together all the time. We have a data science team and, and the analysts and the data science work together a lot. Our head of communications works with our analysts on all kinds of things with press and with portfolio companies. We maintain with our portfolio companies a direct line, just like a signal thread, a text thread with all of them where we're accessible to them 24 seven. So it's high communication, very collaborative culture, but ultimately we have to find the truth. Yeah, I love that. Being a truth seeking organization is not gonna go out of style. Uh, and I, I don't wanna live in the world where it goes out of style. So that's, uh, that's exciting. How are you structuring your days to get the best information possible? Because, you know, so as a co-founder of a fund in a space that's uh, exploding in, in terms of complexity, where are you getting your information? What information sources do you deem as like being like the gold standard right now in the crypto space? Um, so if you just want kind of general price market data, Masari is the best sure. for this now or on, on chain FX is their kind of ticker for it. But Masari is very good. Beyond that, for just kind of price and price movements and such, uh, I don't have a single source. I read, a, I probably spend two to three hours a day just reading, just keeping up with everything that's going on. Um, that's both news as well as like crypto. Everyone in crypto is virtual signaling and publishing stuff about their thoughts on X and Y and Z. And a lot of the analysis is fantastic. And I read basically everything I, I deem of, of quality. So I spent a lot of time doing that and then engaging in, I mean, social media sounds crazy, but Twitter is an important part of our jobs here, both in terms of understanding what's going on, debates, on whatever. So that, that's pretty important. 
that's where we get most of it. And then we, we have our engineering team internally, which does a lot of proprietary stuff. We are not like an algorithmic firm. So we're not like, I, I won't come to you and say like, oh, well, coin API is better than coin metrics than whatever for like data feeds. That our data science team can answer that question, but that's kind of out of scope for me. Sure. But yeah, we just read the news and social media and I'm in a bunch of kind of telegram groups and messaging groups with people where information is circulated. And it's, it's a full-time job. It doesn't ever end. It, last night I was up until 11 o'clock getting something that was time sensitive. And on the weekends it happens and crypto is 24 seven. And so like it just, it, it does not stop. Yeah. So Kyle, how do you think about the future for multi-coin? Cause I'd be interested to know what does the world look like for you and your team in five years? If you're, let's just say modestly successful in your thesis. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, our vision is to build a, a large multi-strat hedge fund that offers different strategies for different types of LPs who want different types of exposure. So today the asset class is still very immature and we as an organization are still relatively immature relative to like Citadels and Bridgewaters of the world. But that's, what, that's the kind of firm we want to build. And we want to diversify risk at the business level by having multiple funds and we want to have synergies across our, our investment team operations that actually makes each of those strategies more value created by having strategies in-house. We've been at this long enough now, about two years, that we feel quite firmly that like there's a lot of clear uh, investment team, investment decision, synergy value across running different strategies. We have not yet rolled out a second strategy. We're still a single strategy firm, but we will expand over time into market neutral strategies and ARBs and market making and trading and whatever. There's going to be a whole bunch of things to do. Um, and so those will eventually split out and become their own strategies, but we're going to do that very slowly and very diligently. Scope creep is a real thing. Style drift is a real thing. Having the infrastructure and processes to modularize what needs to be modularized in those strategies and then share what needs to be shared is, is uh, like there's no, it's all gray and it's hard to figure out. But we know that there's a lot of structural reasons why if you can do it right, you can generate perpetual alpha. Uh, and so that's what we seek, that's what we seek to do. Um, and build a large hedge fund with a super, super narrow focus, offering different strategies for LPs who want different kinds of exposure. Very cool. Kyle, thanks for being generous with your time. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.